0: It's good. I'll be in here in right? Do you want me to go minor and go 50 and then get more of the drum set? <laughs> if I go 50, I'll be able to get the flare <laughs> and... Uh, you know what it is? I'm, I'm making sausage.
1: <laughs> Joel, good choice in the shirt. A
0: little better? I like it, yeah. Scene one, take four. Slave!
1: So what you've been listening to are the actual sounds from a music video set the beating of padded drums, the movie of heavy gear, loud and echoed playback, and of course, laughter. When I teamed up with my business partner, Ian McFarlane, years ago, it all started because of music videos. The two of us got together and hunkered down here in Boston to create a very distinct style. We both looked up to directors like David Fincher and Mark Romanek, artists that launched their careers in music videos and made a really good living doing so. We figured that if we, too, worked hard enough, we could follow in their footsteps. As the years progressed, we started to get noticed by some really big acts and started working for some of the largest record labels. But the business was nothing like what we thought it was. Budgets seemed to hit a ceiling that was getting lower and lower each year, and music videos seemed to get digested a lot faster than they would when they were on MTV. We started to learn the reality behind what it's like to be a modern music video director. We started to learn about all the insider stuff that I wish we knew when we got started. That could have saved us a lot of grief. Now before this starts to sound too depressing, I want to say that I've had some of my best onset experiences doing music videos. Everyone has helped me develop my directing craft and visual style. Once we smartened up to how the music business works, we actually started to have a lot more fun. Today's guest is one of my favorite collaborators in the music video world. Killswitch Engage frontman, fellow foodie, and beer lover, Jesse Leach. If you go to McFarlandandPesci.com and check out our music videos, you'll see that we've done a ton of work with Killswitch Engage, so much so that we actually feel like we're a part of their family. Now, all this was made possible because Ian and I changed the way we approach music videos. So if you're hoping to get into the film industry through a music video career, this is an episode for you. If you're looking to start a company and make a living on music videos, this is an episode for you. Hell, if you're a Kill Switch Engage fan and you want to just know the real story behind some of those videos, well, strap in and enjoy this episode of In Love With The Process. So this morning, we're hanging out with my good buddy, Jesse Leach. Hey, 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 what's going on? What's happening, man? I'm so happy that you were able to uh, get on the line and uh, talk about some nerdy shit with us today.
2: Dude, I'm honored. Pleasure is mine.
1: Sweet. And we're also here with, uh, with Dave, who's hanging out with us today. How's it going, guys? Good, man. Good, good. All right. Um, so let's just get right into it, Jesse. Where you been? Like, how, how's life? Where have you been? You've been touring? What's going on?
2: Uh, it's a mixture of touring. I, I just moved to Brooklyn uh, not too long ago. So it's a balance between touring and trying to just do it with sort of uh, the home life thing, moving into a new place and settling down. It's been good.
1: Nice. Where have you guys been touring these days?
2: Uh, just got back from Australia, New Zealand. Uh, prior to that, we were in Europe for about five or six weeks. And then prior to that it was full U.S. tour. So just keeping busy and getting ready to go out with Anthrax in uh, about a week or so for about six weeks here in the States again.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, because I think you're coming to Boston in, I think you're coming out here in like May or something, right? Is that, isn't it's
2: it? Yeah, it's, I think it's the actual final show of that tour will be in Boston.
1: Oh, uh, we'll have to hang out, dude party <laughs> <laughs> um, that's cool man I like I have never been to Australia it's like one of the few places I haven't been how is it over there
2: pretty incredible I mean, it depends where you go you know um, Sydney which is usually the place you land it's kind of like you know if you've been if you've traveled at all it doesn't really stand out but once you get into the other cities like Melbourne and um, Perth you definitely feel like you're in another world and the wildlife there is different it's it's a pretty amazing
1: place. That's awesome, man. And I want to get into a bit of like how you tour and like all that, but um, just to sort of catch you up on on what uh, this podcast has become, we're really sort of getting into uh, the process uh, that artists take to be inspired. And I'm sort of trying to give an inside look into how portions of the business work for directors and for filmmakers. And I think one thing I really want to chat with you about is uh, is music videos. Because um, a lot of directors start their career or attempt to start their career by doing music video work.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I've been doing it now with Ian um, for, Jesus, like we've been doing it for like 12 years or something like that. And
2: Yeah, you got a hell of a resume going on there, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, thanks, man. It, it was interesting because the, the, the business turned out to be nothing like what I thought it was, which uh, I think it'd be really cool to sort of, sort of talk about all that stuff. Um, and I know Dave will have a couple questions. Uh, being new to the business, of course I do. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> um, well, let's just start, man. Like um, for for uh, for you, dude. Like, how important do you think music videos are for for uh, musicians these days? Are they as important as they used to be back in the MTV glory days? Do you think?
2: Um, I don't know if you can really compare. I mean, I think back then videos were everything. And now it's something I think bands should definitely have. I'm not sure it holds the exact same weight, but it's always good. I mean, whether musicians like it or not, visual is a pretty damn important thing when it comes to a band. Whether it's your quirkiness or you got a group of attractive guys or girls, all that stuff matters. The style, when someone sees the way you look, I think it helps them relate to your music better. So it's still very important, but... I mean, back in the 80s, I, I, people used to worship music videos. It's unfortunately taken for granted, uh, you know, the amount of time and energy and effort put into these things. I think with people with the YouTube generation, it just has become a little less uh, important, but still something crucial to a band that I think every band should have videos.
0: Mm.
1: And then for you, like, how does, um, well, let me ask you on a, on a couple of different levels. like. When, a, when an album drops, there's, there's always the, the notion that you have to have a music video and you have to have these music videos sort of drop before the album goes out for publicity, for promotion. So when, when that starts, how does the music video process start for you? Do you come up with ideas or is it the guys from the management and the label just sort of showing up going, guys, we got to do a music video. What the fuck are we going to do? You know?
2: Yeah, yeah. Back in the early days, uh, it was definitely more of a label Approaching us and giving us a stack of um, treatments of people who wanted to work with us, and you know, I, I can speak for sure that there's been some videos in the past where we've been kind of like, eh, that really wasn't great, but we kind of felt like we had to do it. And I think at a certain point, we we took the reins and uh, just decided that we wanted to do something creative. I think with Killswitch, when we first started working with you, to me it was very eye-opening because you guys really care about what you do and you didn't want to do something generic. So at that point, I think is when the band sort of realized, hey, this is this is something we got to pay attention to, and how you present yourself is important. Um, so for me, it's always been that way. But you know, I, when I rejoined the band, I was kind of like the, the the new old guy. <laughs> I didn't quite have my say yet. Um, but um, that being said, I think the band really did see the effects of. A really powerful video. For example, always the one you guys did. I still still think that stands the test of time as one of the most powerful videos that we've been a part of, and we weren't even in it, which is kind of cool. <laughs> we <laughs> still <laughs> we
1: we still get uh, most of our uh, compliments and most of our questions and comments. And actually, uh, the, the most emotionally um, accepted video has been always for anything that we've done in our career. And I want to get to that, but let's go back to the the origins. So, so back in the day, I think a lot of directors don't realize this, that, that uh, bands will get stacks of treatments from directors, which are usually, I, I think they come to you guys from the label, correct? Like the label gives you that stuff?
2: Yeah, la- between label and management. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, and then what happens is, from what I understand, is that Uh, management and label form relationships with either music video reps or they form relationships with uh, these production companies that rep music video directors. And so from our standpoint, it's really difficult. When we started in this business, Ian and I were doing music videos because of Ian's connections in the music world because of the band he played in. And then he knew a lot of really great musicians. And so we were able to sort of skip past that formality of having to go out and get repped and do spec stuff um and so we started to do stuff for a lot of ian's friends and then we slowly worked our way up to doing stuff for meshuga and i think meshuga was our tipping point when we did stuff for with the video for bleed for them oh, yeah. uh, and then that one sort of tipped us to the point where suddenly we were getting calls from like ozzy osborne's management and we're getting calls from all these folks That uh, wanted to rep us, and suddenly we had this whole new thing where it was like representation. And being an artist, being just a a music video director who works here with Ian, and we're sort of locked in our own little closet making stuff. Suddenly the world seemed to open to us. We had, uh, you know, the potential of 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 a rep in Los Angeles that was suddenly going to take our work and oh fuck yeah, you know what I mean? And now we're now we're going to have that career of like Mark Romanek and and uh, Spike Jones and all these other dudes, where, where you think you got that liftoff. Um, and it was sort of disappointing to realize that essentially these reps would just take, would go out with like a giant fishing net and catch as many directors as they possibly can get their hands on. And then whenever a job would roll through, they would say, hey, guess what? Um, how would you guys like to work with, you know, Kill Switch Engage and we're like fuck yeah, you know, like let's let's work with those guys and they go Well, write a treatment and in our minds as being dumb and young as we were we're like wow These guys are really interested in our work. They've seen our stuff. They've seen everything we've done Let's put together a really great treatment. So you work really hard on it And then the rep just takes that and puts it in a fucking pile and then how do you guys get those treatments?
2: Yeah, I think you just nailed it right there. It goes into a pile And, you know, depending on the energy of the band and and you're talking about most of the artists that you're working with are touring bands. So we're we're on tour. We're not of them relaxing at home when this happens. We're in the chaos of a tour. So when you see a stack of things, that's like, quote unquote, required reading, as some people view it. it. It doesn't always get the full attention it deserves. Me, I'm kind of a nerd and I really enjoy, you know, the whole process. So I always read very thoroughly through them. But um yeah, for, for a lot of times you're right, these guys are, are pitching you know and working fairly hard on something that may just be glanced at briefly, you know and it's not presented in such a way of oh this is who these guys are, this is what they're all about, you know all that information it may or may not be there, but You've got, it's a short attention span basically of exhausted musicians. So it's, it's a kind of a, a shit process. And that's why for us, it was like once we started working with you guys, that kind of changed. But, you know, that's how the majority of music videos are made. Unless you're a, a massive rock star that can handpick things and you care enough, a lot of the younger bands, that's kind of how it used to work for sure.
0: So here's a question for you. Uh, so, like, when you work with Mike and you guys decide to do a video, how much like what's the collaboration process there like how much do you guys go back and forth about what you guys want to see in the video versus like ideas that mike has
2: yeah i think the way that it, that's worked and we've been very fortunate with 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 mike and ian and the way that they work together where i may even just write a paragraph or two of what i'm thinking of and then we'll get on a conference call and there are all the rest of the dots and blanks and t's that need to be crossed and i's that need to be dotted were done by uh Mike and Ian, pretty quickly too. And if we didn't come to a full conclusion, they would say, All right, let's sit with this idea. We'll mill it over and we'll get back to you. And usually that's, we're talking a couple of days. I mean, Ian and Mike are maniacs. So that's a blessing <laughs> for us. Because for me, you know, it was fairly easy. I was like, Oh, I kind of see this. I would even pitch them just, you know, color ideas or like something random that, oh, I was thinking, you know, a road trip or this or that or anything simple like that and just being who they are they put all the pieces together and when a band has their say when somebody gets it the director gets it that's when you have those videos like i would say always for kill switch i think that's probably one of the best ones that i've ever been a part of in my career and i still get feedback about that i still get messages about that Uh, and i think it's a perfect example of you know when an artist is able to communicate properly with people who understand the idea and i think you guys Destroyed that video was so awesome It's probably my favorite video I've ever done
1: Do you remember The creative process on that? Do you remember How we did all that stuff?
2: From what I remember I remember telling you About the song And what the song Meant to me And I said Words like Sunset And uh, You know Big (laughs) open spaces I was pretty general With it And Kind of talked about The meaning of the song And From my memory You guys just ran with it and, And Killed it
1: uh, yeah, I, there's two sides from our angle. And I'll give I'll give the romantic side first. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the romantic side was we had that conversation with you. And the thing that I found really interesting was that you were talking about the love that family members had for each other. Mm. That uh, most of the time, if you were going to get random treatments for a video like that, it would have been of like, uh, a dude longing for his girlfriend or would have been another one of those military videos where his, he's staring at a picture of his wife.
2: It's typical, yeah.
1: Very typical. And so you were very anti that and you were very much into the the love that, that family members have for each other, which I found to be really cool. And then uh, to break from the romantic side for a minute. Originally, we were pitched on doing a video for you guys uh, from the label, I think, that said that you guys were going on tour in Europe and they wanted us to go on tour with you and to do uh, a video on the road, basically. And from Ian and my perspective, we're like, fuck yeah, let's go to Europe. This is gonna be great, you know? And so we signed on to do that video going, it's gonna be awesome, we get to hang out with the guys, we get to tour.
2: I remember that now that you're saying it. Yes, I do remember this.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then um, Justin broke his foot, right? Isn't that what happened?
2: His uh, his um, collarbone. Yep. That's right.
1: Yeah, it was his collarbone. So the drummer breaks his collarbone, and so they had you guys had to tour with a uh, with a sit-in drummer, or like a replacement drummer for that.
2: Yeah, the drummer that used to be in um, Oh, as I lay dying, and now is in that band. Um, Woven War, Jordan, great guy.
1: Yeah, and we know Jordan; he's awesome. So, like, um, so you guys had to tour that. So then, look, right off the bat, it's like, well, you guys can't go do a video with the band now because
2: the drummer's not there. Yeah.
1: The drummer's not there, right? And so immediately we get that phone call, and both Ian and I are like. Oh, uh, fuck this job. Like, it was, like, so depressing. <laughs> it, was, it was so completely depressing, and the, the guy from the label was like, well, what do you guys want to do? And, I, and we're just like, let's just get on the phone with Jesse. Let's just talk with Jesse, and let's try to come up with this great idea. So then when you started to talk about sunsets, and you started to talk about that stuff, I had remembered years prior that I had done this trip down the coast of California and how beautiful this, the, the coast was. And we had our hearts set so much on uh, traveling that I was just like, fuck it, let's go to California. <laughs> so it was kind of that start where Ian and I looked at each other and went, yeah, we're going to go to California. Let's go to California. And then as we processed your thoughts, um, uh, to go back to the romance of it all, a good friend of ours, um, who's, who's a sound tech, a sound engineer here in, um, in Boston, he did the uh, movie movie sound and location audio. Um, Bob, he, uh, he ended up coming down with cancer and he had to move to California because of the weather and because of what he needed. Um, and so it was a good opportunity for us to hang out with a friend of ours who was basically dealing with chemo. And we ended up calling him on the phone because he needed stuff to do. Like he wanted to live his life still. And we said, hey, will you go location scout? Will you help us out with all, these, uh, with all this business for the music videos like that, behind the scene paperwork kind of shit? And uh, he was, like, more than happy. And so it was this, we, both Ian and I were like, oh, he's dealing with cancer, and that's a big thing. And what if it's a family member uh, being diagnosed with cancer and having to tell a brother, and then instead of just sort of sobbing over it, what if they go on a road trip together? And then that's how that idea sort of came about was between all those different things jesse
2: it's such a good story man (laughs) that's and like you guys learning how to 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 work the angles and then all that stuff happening made i think made that video what it is so as as frustrating as it was you guys didn't go on the road with us the end result is is an incredible video and you know i commend you guys for that because i remember the first time watching it uh, the first time showing my dad it actually I think is a better story, and all through my life my dad's been pretty um, pretty stern and uh, you know kind of a, a disciplinarian, and I remember showing him that video, being in the room with my parents and looking back and seeing my dad completely speechless with tears running down his eyes, wow. and I thought to my, and I thought to myself yeah we we did we did really good with this one
1: (laughs) wow man and that's that's another great uh example in in our business and i'm sure in your business too of collaboration and um when i whenever i talk about that video it's never the music video i did it's never the music video that ian and i directed it was definitely a collaboration between us and you Um, and then when we went out there, we decided that if we're going to do this road trip, let's do this road trip with people that we love. And so we sort of waited, we waited our, our casting selections to you guys, because we were like, we want to go with this guy and this guy, or they're perfect for it. And they're friends of ours. They were dudes that we really wanted to go on this adventure with anyways. And one of them, Dave was your brother, Nick, um, who was in it. And... Um, because of those guys and because of our friendship. By the way,
2: hell of a job. Killed it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He did. He totally did. Um, And, you know, we ended up going on this really amazing adventure. And another thing that this podcast really is about is the process. Um, Mm. And what always uh, signifies for me is one of the first projects that I did in my career that the actual process of doing it and making it was actually more rewarding and, 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 and uh, more important to my life than the final product was. That's
2: incredible. That's, that's, that's so awesome, though. It's almost like you could have done a documentary on the making of that film and it would have been just as good, if not better, You know, seeing you guys travel together. I, I just love that picture in my mind of you guys standing on the cliffs and filming, and I'm sure just telling jokes and having a good laugh or whatever the case may be. That's so beautiful, being able to create something where the people who are creating it that are behind the scenes are having a, a life-changing or a really great experience.
1: Yeah, man. It was, a, it was a blast. And I don't know if I ever told you any of those stories, Jesse, but it's not as romantic as you think. Like, uh, some of it was uh, staying in a hotel room that had uh, AK-47 uh, spackle I, up the wall.
2: You remember you telling me these things, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or Jarvis, our cameraman, finding like a crack over the sink. In the place that we're <laughs> but you know we're a bunch of degenerates, so that stuff is a lot of fun to us. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, uh, let's let's move on. I think that's really good stuff. And um, oh, let's just wrap up the music video thing. So back on the music video. Um, Uh, production and how important we still think it is for bands. Why do you think that the videos for music videos are plummeting at this point or the budgets? I'm sorry. Why do you think the budgets for music videos are plummeting at this point?
2: Yeah, budgets definitely. And it's super frustrating because it affects the vision. It affects the whole process of it. But I think it's just a matter of like people getting their hands on equipment, you know, with the whole, everyone's got a laptop. Everyone can do a, you know, a video on their own. I think labels now are almost expecting bands to do work with people who expect less. You know, a lot of times you'll get people who don't have as much experience, but they're affordable. And I think it's happened to a lot more videos, unless the band demands to spend more money, which is a really fine line because record labels are just tough when it comes to money it's everything is uh about promoting the band and video should be just as important i think seeing the visual whether if the band's in the video or not but the style of a video was so important uh, but i think it's just the way of the world with technology on the rise with people having access to more and more stuff i think the men the corporate mentality especially of the, the bigger labels is the bottom line which is money not spending too much money to promote a record that they probably won't sell as much as they used to. It used to always be connected to record sales. Like a video would mean that you're going to buy more records. And nowadays a video means that you're just selling a band's live show. You're selling the experience of a band. So it's definitely changed a lot.
1: Mm. Which is interesting because, I mean, I can see both sides of that argument. And then I think some of the biggest videos that are out there right now are actually finance by the by the, the artists themselves unless the label, right? Like if you're talking like Lady Gaga and shit like that, I mean she's a giant corporation at that point. Like, isn't she the one sort of taking the, the helm and paying for the, the video budgets at that point? Or do you think Yeah, the-
2: but I think that's it. You just nailed it. If a band cares enough to pool their own money, you know, if they have it, that's kind of the way to do it. You know, cut out the cut out the budget idea and not worry about crunching budgets all the time, which Totally hinders the art. So, I think if an artist cares enough, if they have the resources, definitely the way to go is to just put your own money into it. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, being one of five people in a band, it's frustrating because the way that I see it, especially coming from a very visual family growing up on movie sets, to me, that's super important how you present yourself as an artist. And videos give you that unique opportunity to get in people's living rooms. Where they may not not have seen your live show, they may not even really know who you are, but they might see that one video while they're sitting at home and become completely a fan of the band because of that one thing.
0: So for you, for you personally, you know, having your style in mind and the the messages that you want to convey, uh, how much do you like to get involved with the collaboration process with whoever you're, uh, you know, whether it's Mike and Ian or, or whoever else? Uh, how much do you get involved with? Kind of brainstorming for that video. Uh,
2: I love, I love to ha- throw out ideas. I love the whole creative process of it. Um, and I'd have to say, the only time in my career I've been able to really get one-on-one with uh, a director has been Mike and Ian. So I'm kind of spoiled in that regard. Um, but for me, it's just as exciting. I'll get up in the middle of the night with an idea and scratch it down on a piece of paper and. Uh, I'm all about that stuff, but I think it's a matter of knowing how to play to your strengths and your weaknesses. You know, I think for me, um, I've definitely pitched uh, an idea where I was like, oh, that's, you know, Mike even had to like, be be honest with you, man, that's been done. (laughs) It's kind of like, yeah, I see what you're saying, but that's kind of cheesy. And having the humility and the foresight to go, yeah, we'll take the reins. What do you think? What do you think? And let's switch it up. But for me, it's fun. I totally, completely enjoy that process. And I know not every band member does, and not know every band does, because sometimes for them it's you know awkward. Like I know my guys in Killswitch don't really like to be in videos. They'd much rather not be in videos. And to me, it doesn't matter. I think whatever works for the song, I'll do it. I'll be in the video. I'll ham it up on camera if I have to. Uh, I love that stuff. I love movies. I'm a visual guy for sure.
1: Well, I think a lot of people don't realize how much work it is for a band to do a music video. I mean, if you're doing a performance piece, you're talking about, um, you know, performing that track like 25, 35, 50 times over the course of like a 12 hour day. And especially for like the drummer, that's that's fucking exhausting. Like, I think the last time we did a performance piece, Justin was sweating it like it was we just beating him up. You yeah, have- he,
2: was, he was sweating like a half hour into that video. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and for us, like, we try to make, uh, when we do performance pieces, and we do a lot of performance pieces now because we feel like, um, unless there's the money for a good narrative, uh, yeah. then don't, why bother? And I think the, the best special effect is the band. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's what the fans want to see ultimately i
2: mean mean, you could look at the difference between the two videos you did for us that were performance was just uh no you did three actually but strength of the mind Mm -hmm. and eight by design on our last record two totally completely different videos and both really great sort of performance videos Uh, and i think that's a great example of you guys being able to like do two completely different things on one record for one band
1: Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, we get a kick out of it. And and a lot of it comes from Ian's strength as an editor is that he is a musician. So like he really understands pacing. He really understands what he's hearing. He understands what he wants to see when he's cutting. Um, and he's he's amazing with that. And then I think my strength comes from the fact that I'm not. And so when we do music videos, we kind of split roles as directors. Ian usually takes on a lot of the post end and the performance aspect of, of how the band's going to act, and he also does a real good job of connecting with the musicians because he lives that life, he knows that life. And then I come at it from sort of a photography, sort of artist, lofty, you know, messing with the crew most of the time. And and the two of us together become this, you know, double-headed snake that um, really pulls together for performance stuff. I think that's why we do such a good job with them, and and. Um, we like to do them so much. Uh, we've been lately. We've been doing a lot of that stuff for Bose, believe it or not. And we're doing like their in sound in studio sessions recordings, which is a challenge, Jesse, because those guys, they bring in uh, uh, musicians and they pay them a fee to own the licensing for that track to play on their systems in like uh, Best Buy or wherever the hell they sell their stuff. Um, but, uh, the musicians come in and they record it live in that space. And then we only have four takes. So I'm shooting that with like seven, sometimes eight cameras. And every time we do a new take, every camera shifts to a new angle. So we have as much coverage as possible, which is fucking insane. It's an insane way to shoot this.
2: Yeah. I want to go back to what you just said about you and Ian, which I think is important. Uh, and knowing, knowing your, who you're working with, and 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 sort of knowing your strengths, I think you nailed it. Obviously, because you guys know each other so well. But uh, people always ask me about working with you guys, and that's the one thing. It's Ian, you know, sort of um, yelling and getting in our faces in a very friendly, energetic way of like, <laughs> "Bro, think about this. This is what's happened. What's going through your mind? How are you gonna respond to that?" Like he'll get really, he'll get me really hype. <laughs> now I'll do a bunch of takes, and then you're sort of observing the whole thing from behind the lens, and you guys will talk, you'll show them a few things, then you'll very calmly, very Buddha-esque-like come up to me and be like, so this is what we're thinking. We like what you're doing right there, but come back come back with me to the camera. I'm going to show you something. So the way you guys would push and pull, you're giving the artist the full picture so they get what you're seeing. And like you are asking for us to do something, and it makes sense to us why you're asking us. So that made the whole process of doing those videos fun and then very insightful like getting why there's certain energies that need to go up or come down for the camera. I think the way you guys spell it out is why your videos get so good cuz you get the performances that you need and it makes sense to the artists and I think that's just brilliant.
1: Well thanks man and and uh, it, this this show is not about you know us you know patting each other on the back but I think that if you're a younger... Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think if you're a younger director, uh, these things are really important. And I think that uh, even uh, from the photographer aspect, because uh, I've done that for a while, a lot of photographers get so focused on technical and a lot of young directors get so focused on that technical thing. Like, this is how it's supposed to be shot. And this is the kind of camera I'm supposed to be using. And this is the angle I want to do. And, this is how, and And they forget that they're shooting people. And they, they forget that that you actually have to stimulate a good performance. And early in my career, I forgot those things. Luckily I had Ian kicking around because he really would focus on that, being a guy that was hyper aware of what he looked like on stage, hyper aware of of uh, what a, a, a fan will pick up on. And these are things that as a filmmaker and photographer, I didn't pick up on. Um, and so I, I think when you're doing, especially performance stuff, you got to remember that ultimately you're shooting people. It isn't just shooting product and you have to figure out how to motivate these guys, uh, to do their best and do their best, like fucking 40 times. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's super cool, man. Well, let's, um, let's switch gears a bit, man. And, uh, I want to talk about. Uh, your life is basically you're an independent artist. I mean, the fact that you are in a band, uh, you're still an independent artist. And and how, as an independent artist, Jesse, how do you stay motivated, man? Like, what's your day-to-day motivation like?
2: Um, Day-to-day, it depends. You know, lately, I have to admit, I've been a bit exhausted from touring. So I'll go through bouts where not a ton of creativity comes out of me, but I think it's the matter of just keeping yourself uh, disciplined to, to write, you know, as a lyricist to write every day, uh, even if it's not you know sitting down for writing any for anything specifically, just exercising the muscle, you know, getting yourself used to certain times a day your brain is ready to work. I try to do this on tour as well. Getting up in the morning, having a cup of coffee, and my brain is ready to work no matter what I'm doing. So, I think for me, that's pretty important. And then just being aware, you know, when I go out uh, on, by myself, which I do a lot, I spend a good amount of time by myself because my wife works a lot, uh, and observing people and allowing myself those when that inspiration strikes, even if it's something super simple, a phrase. Or something, I stop what I'm doing and I capture it. I write it down. I'll speak into my phone. I'll, I'll have my notepad with me and just being aware of inspiration and capturing it when you can, because sometimes it can be elusive. Sometimes I, it'll go for weeks without me getting something where I'm proud of it. I look at my work and go, Oh, this is going to be a good song or this is a good lyric. So I think it's just constantly trying to capture. You know when you're moved and when you're inspired and i think that's been my big challenge in life is finding the discipline to to sort of be aware of that
1: we talked a bit about uh your escapes uh i think last time we hung out i, I find that really interesting because you know uh, like we were saying before there is this whole notion that a lot of musicians are partying all the time and it, either that or sleeping over sleeping off hangovers but you try to find a way to sort of escape everything and go out on these little adventures right
2: i have to yeah i think just for my mental sanity but my creative process won't work well if i'm drinking all the time and being hung over all the time in fact i don't know how anyone can do that i'm pretty baffled but yeah for me it's it's a balance between getting away in nature when things are completely quiet and i'm able to sort of hear that inner voice within me and then on the flip side, you know, here in New York City, riding the subway, going out into the parks, like interacting with people, observing people is equally as important to my to my writing. And I think that's why I write the lyrics that I write, you know, they're p- pretty deep stuff. It's, you know, when you read what I write, it's not your surface everyday sort of like rock and roll song, there's some depth there. And I think that's important for me as a writer to capture the deeper things. Uh, and you, you know, you can't really live that party lifestyle and, and be a sort of deep thought provoking artist. I mean, everybody's a bit different, but I know that I can't be that way because for me, the most important thing is my music. My most important thing is, is the, the message I'm trying to pass along with my music. And sometimes that does require for me to be secluded and sort of live that hermit, uh, almost monastic life for a while when I'm not touring. So I do a lot of, uh. Escaping up to the mountains or to the to the beach during the winter, basically anywhere where I can get away from human voices.
0: <laughs> so I got a really generic question, but something I'm always curious about for you personally is it? Do you prefer to, as a, writing someone who writes lyrics, write lyrics alone or with instrumental? Like, what comes first for you?
2: Um, I think with the way that Killswitch operates. Uh, because it's such a well-oiled machine, these guys will send me demos of of music. You know, music that's been um, composed and written without me being in the room, or I'm certain times without anyone else being in the room. Individuals will come up with demos, then submit the demos to the band, and all five of us will listen to them. And my, the way that I usually write for Killswitch specifically is. I'll listen to a song and jot down the way that the chords make me feel, whether it's a sad-sounding song or a a very energetic or triumphant-sounding song, and sort of do bullet points to get my brain going on what I think this song should be about. And then I'll listen to the track a bunch of times, and then I'll go separately without listening to the music and write lyrics, take those lyrics, bring it back to the music, and see how they could fit in. So it's, it's kind of a balance between writing to the music or being inspired by the music and then having to disconnect. Because I think creativity can be thwarted if you're writing to specific sonic sounds. Your brain gets caught in patterns that doesn't allow for real poetry to happen. So I need to do both. I need to have the poetry stand on its own. And then that poetry can become lyrics when I pull it apart and place it within the music
1: that's awesome man i never thought about all that stuff like uh which is cool because let's go down even further down that road when you when you picked when you picked uh singing as your outlet because you're an artist like i am and and you know we have we have this need to tell stories and we have this need to share um and our, my, my world uh, or my output for my art is completely different than yours from the fact that m- most people ingest my stuff on their own or without me. So I'm usually not there. There may be like a rare occasion where I have a screening where I get to be a part of that. But you on a nightly basis get to see the emotional reaction to the stuff that you're you're writing and you're putting out. Um, was that something that you thought about when you chose your avenue, or is that just a happy sort of accident that happened?
2: I think when I initially wanted to, to be a singer, or let's be honest, when I first started, a yeller, a screamer. Um, <laughs> for me, it was more about the message. I felt an urgency at a young age. You know, I was pretty well educated and very sort of turned on to information, my father being a highly educated man. He's now a professor and was a minister for many years with like two master's degree and a PhD. So it was always knowledge, knowledge, knowledge books, you know, being aware of the media, being aware of the world around you. And at a young age, it all kind of struck me that something's wrong here. Something's fucked up. There's a lot of terrible things going on in the world. And for me, I just needed a soapbox to like say, Hey, wake up people like got to start treating each other better. From a very young age, I felt that in my heart. And I think that's the initial thing that drove me to want to be a vocalist and wanted to do music that was loud and got people's attention because I I felt an urgency. So I think as far as the interaction with an audience, that was not a part of my mind when I decided that this is what I wanted to do. But as soon as I did see the reaction to an audience, I did get in a band and people started to get to know what I was saying lyrically. Then it sort of clicked, and that became my my drug almost. Where initially it was about the message and the words, and then when I realized I could get this fix, you know, this this buzz, uh, it just became the perfect storm of, you know, the reason I still do this is because I feel a purpose behind it, and whether that's just it's not just with the message, it's with the the meeting of the fans, the seeing fans singing along and getting super emotional or even crying. When they see us play, it's, you know, you can't replace that with anything. There's nothing in the world like that interaction between audience and performer. Uh, And I don't know that I could do what I do without that. Um, I do love to create, but there's just something about that instant gratification of an audience that has become a very addictive drug to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is also interesting when you think about uh, the addictive qualities of that, you know like um, touring itself I think we might have talked a little bit about this like touring uh, and th- the the absence of touring must really kind of screw with you you know as a as a person
2: yeah, yeah, totally. It's like even if you don't have a mental illness, you're gonna experience ups and downs if you're a touring musician. Uh, and unfortunately, I, um, I do have uh, I do suffer from anxiety and depression, which a lot of creative people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, initially, you know, I've toured on and off for about 22 years. But serious touring, serious full on touring um, without a lot of breaks has only been for the past five, almost six years with Killswitch. Uh, and I didn't realize how much of a struggle that that would be. You, know, you get on the road, you start getting that buzz from the, the high and the adrenaline and your body actually seeks it out. So, you know, it becomes something you your entire being looks forward to, the performance, the performance. And, you know, coming off stage and being on the tour bus and trying to go to sleep is almost impossible. So that leads to like, you know, drinking a little bit to calm your nerves. And, you know, it's just this whirlwind of energy when you're on tour. Then when you get home, And all of that is gone. It's depressing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have the language for it, but it would spiral me down into a pretty dark place where I'd be happy to be home and see my wife and family and do fun things. But a couple days into that, you're you're missing your buzz. And my body would even get freaked out. Like I'd be on the couch here at home having dinner with my wife, watching a movie. And, you know, when eight o'clock, nine o'clock rolls around when my body's used to be on stage, I'm ready to go crazy and I'm just sitting there gnawing at the bit. like what is wrong with me <laughs> I feel like throwing a chair against the wall like I'm like going crazy and it took me a while to realize oh well I'm so used to this lifestyle that when I get home I crash and then you got to get ready to do it again in a few weeks it's it's mentally and physically and spiritually taxing but I think once you sort of get to learn to to live with that lifestyle it becomes such a part of who you are.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. That stuff is so interesting to me. And it, it's something that, uh, you know, as we work with musicians and we've spent years, um, uh, doing so. And from an outsider's perspective, I'm always really curious about that, that life, like, uh, what that life really is. And, and the idea that you spend, you know, 22 hours or 21 hours a day, just sitting around waiting for like that two hour like push, you know that is really intense. And, and then the rest of the time you guys are just sort of waiting and sort of riding on a bus and waiting in the back room somewhere and and that in itself, I mean for me to do that on a vac- like even if I went on a trip and I'm like, okay, so I get to go on a trip to you know uh, Rome, you know and really all you guys are doing is just showing up to Rome. And then if you do what you do, which is break away and you go off on those adventures. But I've been with bands that you don't even get time to do that. I mean, what's the difference between Rome and New Jersey, other than the fact that the languages are different, but you're still in some sort of dark, uh, dank, like performance space. Um, so th- like, I-, I feel like the reality of being a musician is really interesting to me and um and ian's been dealing with this a lot lately with his new doc on uh, agnostic front um the godfather's a hardcore and, and the aging that happens and, and sort of the idea that those guys are touring with music that they wrote when they were like in their as teenagers and now they're in their almost 60s or pushing that that high point and they're still sort of touring and communicating that same message and it doesn't mean the same thing to them at this point so it's it's fascinating. And this I think that's a whole podcast within itself. Is to sort of talk about, you know, what the actual lifestyle of being a musician is. Um, and I think I was just ranting there, Jesse. But- no, no,
2: but I, I'm <laughs> right there with you. I think artists in general, you know, the process of creating a masterpiece with a painting or the process of, of a movie where it's hurry up and wait for months and then you finally get it done. I mean, there's so much. I mean, I'm sure after you know, you make a movie and it's all said and done. You almost, well, I mean, I'm sure with you, you're like next, but yeah. see, there's a certain amount of like, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say, it's kind of like depressing where you're like, shit, I put so much time and effort into that. And now what? And I think with performance and tours, it's the same thing, but it's, it's definitely like, you know, a, a shot of espresso as opposed to just a regular cup of coffee where you get a, an intense amount of things, at such a short amount of time. And then it's a matter of like having your brain bounce back and adjust. Uh, and and I think for me, especially like, you know, I've got songs that I've written when I was 22 that we perform now. we just did a tour in Australia, for example, that was the 15-year anniversary of one of our records. Oh, cool. Yeah, and, and, and people are asking, so what's it like? What's it like? It's really weird to stand on stage and perform something that you wrote when you were 21, 22 years old. And I have a completely different point of uh, view and a a different state of mind because of that. Uh, And I think all that being said, everything I just said, it's all about your mind. It's all about understanding the way that art works, understanding the way you're communicating to people, and then adapting to a particular lifestyle that it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. To be an artist living off your art, period.
1: I completely agree, man. I completely agree Uh, on every level. Like, whether you're a musician or whether you're a filmmaker or whether you're a photographer, um, as soon as you make that decision to take that leap into the unknown, into the unknown financially, into the unknown, uh, you know, uh, socially, you know. it's 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 definitely a lifestyle decision and um i think that it's for me it's a very rewarding one because I, I i feel like i live like a very rich um and exciting life on a day-to-day basis mm. um and i can't go back to doing mechanic work or anything like that i'd probably put a bullet in my face if i had to go back and do that stuff
2: so I feel the same way, yeah i feel the same way
1: yeah man because you you were a bartender for for years right
2: yeah, I bartended. I did, um, you know, you name it, I did it, man. Stock work, carpentry, you know, just odd jobs, anything to get my hand on. But yeah, my latest foray pr- prior to getting back and touring was being behind a bar. Because uh, I, love, I love restaurants, I love kitchens, I love bars, I love that whole atmosphere. And people in the restaurant industry are pretty similar to musicians as well. So I did find a bit of a comfort zone there, but I could never go back, you know doing the same thing in the same particular building day after day when my job now is to travel the world i think that's a huge perk and you're right i live a, i live an exciting life too and i wouldn't change a damn thing if i'm home too long i, I know at the bit i want to get out and travel i love it you know but it definitely took some adjusting for sure to get to, to the point where now where i i love this life and i wouldn't change it for anything
1: yeah man and and it's it's not easy in and, and those months where you're like oh shit i don't have rent <laughs> you know what i mean like when the when the money thing sort of breathes down your neck um and it, when i when i first started out i would really get fucking stressed out about that and it would really kill you know my creative vibe and then you'd have to go to work on stuff that you didn't like how long did it take you to finally get to the point where you were able to make some loot off of your or a living like a real living off your art
2: yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I lost a lot of, uh, possessions. Uh, I've had to work really terrible jobs. Um, uh, I'd say it was a good 16, 17 years before I saw, you know, a decent amount of money that was going to cover me and make me feel confident I could live off it. And prior to that, you know, I'd come home from tours and scramble to get work. So yeah, it was—I'd say 16, 17 years at least of of paying dues, you know, before I saw a decent paycheck.
1: And then, do you think uh, were those 16 years or 17 years miserable for you, or were they were they were they some of your best years? Like, what were those years to you?
2: I would say, you know. If you love what you do, it shouldn't be miserable. To me, it was all great fun. The only setback would be not being able to make a living and, and having to struggle to make ends meet. But it's all in your state of mind. When you're an artist and you live for your art, you are out of society's norms. So all the things that people who are you're surrounded by are taking pride in, whether that's their white picket fence or their steady relationship or their career, as a you know, someone who puts a suit on every day and makes a chunk of money, I never really wanted any of those things. All I ever really wanted was to be a performer. So, even when it did get dark, even when it was hard, the bottom line was I was still fighting for my dream. I was still fighting to live through my passion. So, you know, I wouldn't change a damn thing. And you know, the good far outweighs the bad when I look back on it. My memories focus more on my achievements than my failures. And I think it's that state of mind that you have to have as an artist to know that you're going to have to pay your dues. You're going to have to play gigs, you know, for me in front of like 15, 20 people after driving eight hours. You know, I've done that so many times sleeping on people's floors, you know, hearing a prostitute getting beat by a pimp in the next hotel room. I mean, (laughs) all these potentially (laughs) terrible things that would scar somebody and, potentially deter them from you know attaining their their goals that's the kind of stuff you have to get through to get to where you're going to be where you're going to make a decent living off of it
1: well dude i think that is the perfect place to end our conversation man i I really appreciate you uh talking with us today jesse nice
2: hell yeah man that was fun it's good to hear your voice buddy
1: yeah man i miss you dude and uh I think uh, you know uh, we got to work on something again. And we'll talk about that when I stop recording. But uh, <laughs> sure. Um, but thanks so much for being here, man. And uh, thank you everybody for listening. And thank you today, Dave, for asking some good questions. Yeah, Jesse is great talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you guys. Appreciate it, man. Much respect. Today's episode is brought to you by my good buddies at Puget Systems. It seems like everyone these days are making that jump from Mac to PC, but they're just a bit worried about how to actually do it. Now, we just got back from a trip to NAB talking about my switch from Mac to PC and how simple it was and how much happier I've been since. So the common responses that I was getting from most people were, do I have to build it myself? Or why should I hire a company to build it when I can actually build it myself? Well, the answer is simple. Start by asking yourself, do you want to be tech support for all your editors? Do you want to be constantly distracted from your creativity every time an update doesn't work? When something goes wrong, can you drop everything and start that frantic Google searching for answers? I didn't want to do that. And thankfully for me, the guys at Puget offer lifetime support. That means if you have a problem, you can call them on the phone, they'll pull up your information on the system that they built for you and walk you through it they've also packaged that computer in a box that you save so that if you can't figure it out you can literally ship it back to them and they'll fix it for you so when I bought my system I plugged it in and it was working immediately I didn't have to install anything I didn't have to go through the process of troubleshooting it just worked I can't say enough good things about these guys. I'm proud to be sponsored by them. And listen, I don't make a commission on sales. Like I love them because I use their systems. So if you're looking to make that switch, go to Puginsystems.com and you'll be able to get your answers. If you haven't done it yet, go subscribe to our YouTube channel in love with the process. There you'll find some really cool vlogs, video blogs, kinda that Dave and I have been putting together. We just put up one called The Power of Color that gives an inside look at how I prep colors for my photography. We also show you how to shoot movie titles in camera, and then we're gonna have boatloads of content coming from our trip at NAB. Really too much stuff to cram into this plug. So go to mikepecci.com to see it all, or go over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. That's even better because the more subscribers we have, the better the show's doing. So subscribe, show us that you like it, leave us some comments. Lastly, The amazing Code Electro has, I think, officially become our music supplier for this podcast. So all those really cool 80s themes that you're hearing in the background, that's Code Electro. You can uh, buy his stuff on iTunes. He's got like two or three albums that are just really cool, 80s-sounding retro wave. It basically sounds like a John Carpenter movie, so go pick it up. Uh, Lastly, I'm going to say this for both Dave and I, thanks for listening, guys. We've had a great response so far, and we have a lot of really cool stuff coming in the future.